The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. ABSA CIB, provider of market-leading digital trade finance solutions, is proud to bring you The Money Show. ABSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. An astonishing day on the JSE. An astonishing day for the currency. An astonishing day all round the really, I suppose, the, the last unofficial work day of the year thanks to the President declaring tomorrow Friday the 15th a public holiday in addition to all of the others that we have in honour of the Springboks' great Rugby World Cup victory. It feels like eons ago uh, that the Springboks emerged victorious from the 2023 Rugby World Cup but we still have the public holiday tomorrow to enjoy and to celebrate and I'm sure many of you will be doing precisely that. Tonight, the celebration, though, is around financial markets. It is around the currency. It is around the level of shares on the JSE. A a really, really strong day. An unusually strong day. The JSE nearly 4% stronger in a single day. Not sure when last we saw a day where the market added 2,600 points, but that is where it is closed today and uh, doing very, very nicely. Above the 75,000 level, we'll look at the consequences of not only Jerome Powell's statement, but also the European Central Bank and the Bank of England today and how it is likely to affect us. George Glenoss is standing by. He's at ETM Analytics. Also, lots of housekeeping to do this evening as we come toward the end of year. Um, we're going to be looking at why you need to take just a little bit of time out just to do a little a, a spring cleaning of your personal finances, even though it's the last thing. And I'm absolutely certain it's the last thing, this side of Root Canal, that you are wanting to do this weekend. But get it done and you will feel much better for yourself. Uh, also tonight, our small business focus, Songoba Vuba, um, is going to be looking at what should be a quiet December for most small business owners and how best to utilize it. So, yeah, there is some PT for you tonight here on The Money Show. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. This time yesterday was a lot more gloomy than today, and what a difference a day makes. Certainly a month makes an even bigger difference. A fundamentally different tone from the U.S. Fed Chair Jerome Powell last night that at any point, than any other point in the last two years. He said that the U.S. Fed was likely at or near its peak for the interest rate tightening cycle, and it's the clearest sign yet that we've seen from the central bank in the United States that its tightening campaign, the, the campaign to raise these interest rates is over. Markets speculating today that there will be at least three cuts in the U.S. next year. The Bank of England also decided to keep interest rates steady today, but its tone was different from that of the Fed. Governor Andrew Bailey warning it's too soon to conclude that inflation in the U.K. is on a firmly downward path. The European Central Bank expressed a similar sentiment but was a little bit more forthcoming and suggested that it too may be in the mood for some cuts. George Glenos, the head of research at ETM Analytics, three massively influential central banks in the last 24 hours, all beginning to talk a different kind of talk, George Glenos, around the future of inflation and interest rates. And I think that's very encouraging. Yeah, it's very encouraging. And uh, look, we've been seeing some nascent signs uh, for a while now that this global economy is, is turning a little bit softer. Uh, some of the resilience that was reflected in the U.S. economy in, in recent months is, is now just starting to leave. Uh, and, and so I think the, the Fed, if it is indeed interested in engineering a soft landing, which it's, you know, the, all, all indications 
are that they are, uh, then they would want to start be, uh, behaving a little more proactively and uh, and and considering uh, things a little more holistically than just uh, focusing on uh, strictly speaking inflation uh, with, without taking into consideration some of the growth consequences that might follow. So, I think it's just a, a natural progression in in the business cycle, and uh, the U.S. led uh, some of these central banks in in initially hiking, and so. It doesn't surprise me that they would also be uh, amongst the first to to start reducing interest rates as well. But we think this is the top of the cycle for sure. And uh, we are anticipating 2024 is going to be a a much more uh, growth-friendly year, certainly in the second half of the year. So when we look at the Fed statement a month ago compared to the Fed statement last month, it is like two different people gave completely different speeches. Yeah, I think Bruce. A lot of central banks uh, will never will will never um, give full disclosure on on their thoughts. Uh, they they often utilise their guidance uh, to try and um, shift expectations one way or another to achieve their their ultimate objective of of bringing down inflation and reducing inflation expectations. So I think it's it's fair to say that quite often central banks like to talk tough. Uh, in a bid to to try and and change expectations so that they don't have to act as tough, uh, and quite often they will persist with that for as long as as the uh, economic um, reality allows them to. But the the minute that economic reality starts softening and and shows a few signs of of weakening, uh, then they they can pull back pretty quickly on on the rhetoric and and change it as they have done in the past month. So I think it's. It's justified. Uh, certainly some of the data that we've seen out of the U.S. we believe justifies this. And, uh, yeah, if they push it a little bit too too far, uh, I, I think they just uh, impose a, a whole bunch of new risks onto that U.S. economy that they don't really need to do. Uh, so, so for now, I think this is uh, justified. I think it's, it's right. And, um, yeah, I mean, when I looked at the markets a little bit earlier today, they were pricing in a lot more than just three rate cuts next year. They're, they're talking about the Fed starting to cut in March and progressing at, at each every at every meeting thereafter by a full 25 basis points. So it's more like uh, four or five uh, um, rate cuts of, of 25 sure. basis points next year, which is a, a fairly significant shift in, in market sentiments. It's absolutely enormous, and the the European Central Bank being a little bit more circumspect than the U.S. Fed, and the Bank of England being quite a lot more circumspect than the U.S. Fed. Who's reading it best? Do you think? Um, I, I think the Fed's got it uh, reasonably spot. And in fact, I, I think all three of them are are probably quite um, quite accurately reflecting their their underlying um, e- economic prospects. Uh, the the other two. Have uh, have obviously quite different dynamics. I mean, you, you have a look at Europe and what's going on with the geopolitics and the impact that uh, the war in Ukraine has had on them, and 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 of course their their relations with with uh, Russia and and oil prices and energy and all of that sort of stuff. It, it is a little different to to what we're seeing in the US. So naturally, they're going to be looking at things a little differently as well. They've also had uh, lower growth. Um, and, and so they haven't jacked up interest rates quite as far. Uh, the, the difference uh, there is that, uh, of course, they've, as a result of their, uh, their tighter fiscal policy, they, they've gotten away with lower interest rates, but they've still got an inflation problem that they've got to bring under control. 
the Bank of England, on the other hand, had a much bigger inflation problem than the other two. Uh, and so they had to act a little more forcefully, which they've done. Um, and, but I think the, the tide has turned almost definitely, and uh, we're anticipating that uh, 2024 is going to bring uh, quite a significant shift in, in those monetary policies of all three of those central banks, which is great news for us in South Africa. Uh, it eases the pressure on the Reserve Bank, and I think we'll uh, open the door for the domestic uh, central bank to to cut interest rates uh, at least three times through the course of next year. Now, that's, a, that's also a big change in view there, isn't there? I mean, George, Sunday, the, this, the Reserve Bank, which has been incredibly cautious, the South African Reserve Bank, and it was we were anticipating, I think, at the last MPC meeting that they would probably begin to cut next year, but three cuts next year is incredibly progressive. Well, again, uh, I think you need to... Uh, to, to borrow a golfing term, play it as it lies, because right now what, we, what yeah. we're looking at is a currency that is uh, recovering. Um, so the, the, the RAND, along with many other emerging market currencies, responded very favorably to what we saw from the Fed. Um, and, and we think that that's just a sign of things to come. Uh, we, we believe that there's more appreciative ability, both in the RAND as well as other emerging markets, and that, in turn, helps reduce some of those inflationary pressures um, a little bit more uh, than, than perhaps is priced into the Reserve Bank's models and, in fact, in, in probably in many private sector economist models. So I, I think there is a swing factor that we need to take into consideration. That swing factor is the RAND. And if the RAND does appreciate a little bit more, uh, then, then the picture changes fairly substantially. And then I think the Reserve Bank will look silly if it doesn't cut interest rates, uh, you know, along those lines. So yes, there, there has been a shift, uh, but the shift, uh, the initial, uh, the initialization of that shift has come from the Fed. And I think, um, there's a lot that will flow from that and, and in a more constructive way. So yeah, I mean, you can call it progressive, but I think it, to, to some degree, it's also a, a natural response to, uh, what might unfold in in terms of the financial market reaction to what's what's been kicked off in America? George Gennos, thank you. George is the head of research at ETM Analytics. What was the phrase he used? The rand's more appreciative ability. Um, so I think that means the rand could gain even further. Andre Celia is director and currency strategist at Treasury One. Would you agree with George Gennos that the rand has more appreciative ability? Uh, as the U.S. Fed starts to cut and cut quite aggressively, Andre. Yes, good evening and good evening to all the listeners. I would agree with George 100% that the appreciative side of the RAND is starting to look really good after the announcement by the Federal Reserve uh, because that also leads to a bit of a bump into the strengthening side of the U.S. dollar uh, so there's a couple of things, and it's like George mentioned, you know, I don't think that the Reserve Bank on our side is built in uh, all the positives in terms of inflation. Uh, should interest rates be cut and should the markets look a little bit better? Uh, but apart from that, if the U.S. dollar loses some of its color and moves to the 12 and 130, seen it at 110 then certainly we're going to see the RAND testing the 18 levels and we could go and have a big figure called 17, which uh, all those things continue to build a positive spin on inflation, on interest rates, on growth. 
uh, and everything. Uh, so we might be in for a bit of a better time in terms of the value of the rand than what we've been before. The biggest fear of central banks, of course, has been up until now cutting rates too early. It happened in the 1970s, and markets have got long memories, where uh, Paul Volcker, who was the chair of the U.S. Fed at the time, anticipated that inflation had been nipped in the bud, relaxed his guard, started cutting interest rates, and suddenly there was this sort of double take on inflation, which then began to run like a wildfire that was being fueled by um, Avgas. That's the most flammable liquid I can think of at short notice. And um, he was then forced to raise interest rates to a point where the U.S. economy broke uh, for a bit. And I wonder whether or not you are as confident as Jerome Powell certainly appeared to be last night that that is no longer a concern. In my personal opinion, I would, I think the... Markets, I think the world in terms of economic growth and everything uh, coming out of the whole COVID situation needs interest rates a little bit lower. I think people's spending uh, is really under pressure. I think their incomes are under pressure coming out of that. And I think one must also take into account that this differs a little bit from the 80s in the sense that interest rates was artificially brought very, very low during a COVID period to aid markets. Uh, but that followed on the back of a period from 2008 that the world was in a bit of a slump and didn't grow that much. Uh, and interest rates was also there, brought lower to aid the markets. But at the same time, billions of dollars was printed uh, to aid the market, similarly in COVID. Uh, and it's interesting, uh, and these figures comes from George, by the way, that the amount of money that was printed during the COVID period, whilst the money that was printed after the financial crisis in 2008 uh, was more than double in the COVID period and much quicker. And that brought inflation to the forefront. So I think the situation differs a little bit, but be that as it may, I would be cautious to cut interest rates too quickly and too fast because that would only bring about more spending uh, and unnecessary spending that will fuel inflation again. So, yes, I think the markets are ready for it uh, by March, April, not before that. uh, But then I would be cautious to cut, you know, at consecutive meetings. I would skip some of the meetings Mm. uh, so that you keep the interest rates at an elevated level for a little bit longer. Yeah, slowly, slowly as she goes, no sense in upsetting the global economy any further than it's already been upset. That presumptive 17 rand to the dollar target, is it a first quarter target? Is it a possibility in the first quarter, do you think? I think it's a possibility in the first quarter. Um, If I were to sort of look into my crystal ball, I think that we're going to breach the 110 level on the euro within the next two weeks and gradually move up to the 112 level. And that will bring us down to the below 18 level uh, very soon in the new year. Thank you so much to uh, currency expert Andre Cilia this evening, director and currency strategist at Treasury One. Before him, George Ganos, the head of research at ETM Analytics. They are of a single view. 
that uh, markets are going to be in much better shape as a result of the indications from the U.S. Fed. Now, these things can turn on a ticky. They absolutely can. We've seen a big turnaround in sentiment from the U.S. Fed from last month to this month, um, although this time, this time maybe it's different. Those are the most fateful words ever spoken in financial markets. But yes, it was a huge day for the JSE. Uh, we saw share prices rocket on the day. We saw platinum shares up in double digits. Gold shares, gold fields up 15%. Uh, the platinum stocks up uh, between 13 and 14%. Financial stocks positive as well. And a broad swathe of industrials also doing nicely. Pick up on that in a moment. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by the market leader in digital trade finance solutions, APSA CIB. APSA is a registered FSP. Red the Color Money is, Show. Uh, the markets. Always do that. Why do I always do that? There's that Paul. That's just a bit too long. Graham Kerner with a Kerner perspective this evening here on The Money Show. And it, it just feels like we've finally got that Christmas present we've been gagging for for the last couple of months. Graham, good evening. Yeah, good evening, Bruce. I think as you were saying in the introduction, I think particularly uh, mining stocks, you know, resources shares up very strongly, resources index, as you were saying, up almost 8%. But it was, it was pretty broad-based. You got the feeling, I don't know, it almost felt to me as though people were we're trying to do their buying before they pack their bags for Plet or St. Francis or San Lemire or wherever it is they're going <laughs> off to because yeah it was it was quite it was quite frenetic um uh, you know i mean obviously when the miners have a good day then you you know the the market's going to going to uh, do well top 40 up almost 4.6 um i mean the only laggards interestingly enough were maybe uh, the likes of Naspas the tech sector was down a little bit and likes of Richmond, relatively speaking, was a little bit subdued. But, um, yeah, it was a, a great day, you know, not only for commodity shares, but, as you said, financials. Um, and interestingly, a lot of the geared market players, so, you know, the asset managers, let's call them, including the life office, are doing very, very nicely today, and retailers doing very well. So you almost got the feeling that we've been talking about it for a while, that there's this this build-up of energy, and today, I don't know if people just needed to fill their stockings before they went away or what the problem was, but um, you just got the feeling that there were a lot more buyers than sellers, and we've been talking about it, about the fact that, you know, you can get flat-footed or wrong-footed by being too bearish in an economy like South Africa uh, quite quickly. Yeah, I mean, you, you describe it as a problem, but what a wonderful problem to have because investors did go mad. I, I looked at the performance of other stock markets around the world and nothing reacted as sharply as the JSE did. Now, that's possibly because we've cut the year short by an extra day uh, as a result of the public holiday tomorrow to celebrate the World Cup. Or maybe it's just that for a long time, investors have been looking at the prices of shares on the JSE saying, give me a reason. Give me a reason to step in here and buy some of these things. And today that reason came and it was not whispered, but shouted. Yeah, very much so. I think the, you know, the, 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 the more dovish tone from the Fed obviously helped. Um, uh, and, and if you look today, um, the ECB was a lot more hawkish in their, in their tone. And, and, and you know, the, the, the DAX and the, um, and the CAC, for example, reflecting that. So I think in, in large part, it was probably prompted by the Fed but I think people are saying, you know what, South African assets have been in the doldrums for a very long time. If things go better, um, you know, you could really get some great performance. And let's not forget, 
you know, if you're a if you're an American investor or a British or a European investor, you bring in your pounds, euros, and dollars in very very favourable exchange rates as well. So, I think the the big backdrop here for me though is you've got a, a, a JSE top forty on on a roughly a ten PE, maybe slightly inflated by a couple of the counters, but there's a lot of value deeper down in in industrials and financials. So I think that's the story. People are saying, well. Let's look through this tighter monetary policy environment. Let's look to a world where, where we actually want to get on the front foot, be positive, and maybe South African assets, as I say, that have been so poor, perform, so, such poorly performing uh, assets for some time, um, have probably just appeared on people's radars. Um, you know, if they look three three years forward, I think there's pretty good money to be made in South African equities. Most people, when asked a question about currencies, would rather reveal the most intimate details of their most recent medical examination at the GP than dare speculate about the currency. But we've had two brave speculators on the currency this evening forecasting a better start to 2024 for the currency than we've enjoyed during 2023. I wonder if you can be as optimistic about the prospects for the currency based on what we've been talking about this evening. Uh, and, uh, you know, do you see 17 to the dollar again in the first quarter of, of 2024, Graham? Well, Bruce, if you want to, you know, drag your name through the mud, you predict currencies because it really is a mugs game. But I, I do feel that there's a lot of bad news baked in. Um, I think particularly if China can get its act together and get a bit of growth, it'll take the whole emerging market cluster with it. So, you know, um, to give you an idea, I had a friendly wager with somebody on um, the three-month bet on, on Rand Dollar, and I was bullish Rand Dollar, and the, the bet expired, I think, on, on Monday afternoon. Um, and from there to now, you know, we, we, we're almost a, a, a Rand better. So that shows you how quickly things can turn. So, yes, on balance of arguments, I think, um, I wouldn't be surprised to see the rand better. Whether we get to 17 or not is a, is a secondary point. But I think uh, it's been long; it's been weak for a long time. And often, after these blowout periods, it, it spends a few years fighting its way back. And I think we might be moving into that phase. Yes. Graham Kerner, thank you. Graham is with the Kerner Perspective this evening on the Money Show. Thank you, Graham. 702. Bruce is on the Money Show. The Money Show, of course, is brought to you by APSA CIB. APSA CIB, provider of market-leading digital trade finance solutions, is proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. We'll chat to Wandile Sechobo in just a moment. He's one of the country's top agricultural economists. One of the, the, the big concerns that I certainly have... Uh, from a household level and also just from a macroeconomic level is what is going on with food prices. Food price inflation has outstripped average inflation for uh, the longest time. It's certainly been a, more than a two-year process. And the biggest risk to our household budgets at the moment is the incessant rise of food prices, still going up faster than official inflation. And uh, the the real cost of food is having a significant negative impact on household budgets. There are two main reasons for why, and maybe them, actually I think that there are probably more than just two reasons. Certainly the two main reasons, animal diseases, so the bird flu this year has not helped chicken prices, and the mess at our ports has meant that exports have not been great, so food producers haven't been able to get their product out to new markets, and imports of foodstuffs also have struggled considerably. 
there's also, of course, the logistics issues, the war between Hamas and Israel, etc., etc., etc. Wandile Sechobo is an author. He's also the agricultural economist at the Agricultural Business Chamber. He's on the line to us this evening from Pretoria. And let's look at the year that has been in agriculture, Wandile, and the impact that it's having on the cost of my food basket. And I'm feeling robbed. It's been a really, really tough year. And I think it's indicative of the pain that's being felt on the farms itself. Now, absolutely, Bruce. Uh, there's been a number of challenges this year. And I think what you started with is one of the important ones. You mentioned the animal diseases in the poultry space. But this is something that has been spread across the agricultural uh, value chain because we, we had also a challenge in the livestock industry, what we call foot and mouth disease. And that has affected um, the, 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 the cattle industry. Right after that, we also had another challenge called the African swine fever, which negatively affected the pig industry. And of course, then the avian influenza. And all of that was coming while these industries were coming from a few years of really higher feed prices. Because we know from poultry, for example, 70% of the cost is soybean and yellow maize, and all of those were elevated for some time. So that's the biggest uh, challenge uh, on, on one part. The second one, of course, that is the one that you're talking about on the on the exports. And I would say the logistics are becoming an issue more so on the last quarter of the year. Because if you think about the first nine months of the year, we did have a reasonably better period. I mean, I'm looking at the numbers now. Our agricultural exports for the first uh, nine months were around about $10.2 billion, up 1% on a year-on-year basis. Volume and value was great onto that. But I think these two challenges of animal diseases, as well as what we, we are alluding now that is related to, to the courts, were some of the key things that uh, have been a headache to, to many of the guys um, in, in the sector. And there's many more than uh, that are related to things that are even outside of our control, the geopolitics being one of those aspects that I think has presented a number of challenges to the sector. How are farmers feeling? I mean, you know, farming is by nature a high-risk activity. It is uh, uh, the uh, farmers accept the risk, I think, of seasonality. They accept the risk of weather patterns, even in a, in a, a an environment where the environment is being severely affected by carbon and by, by climate change. They're willing to accept that. They believe they can mitigate that risk. They can plant better varietals. They can uh, consider their options quite uh, quite carefully. But this is, a, I mean, what did Nassim Taleb call? them in 2008 the black swans we've had like three or four black swans in a single year this year um it must be leading to some trepidation as to what the future of commercial agriculture holds i mean the, the mood is certainly down a bit uh, Bruce, because if you were to say to me let me rank maybe three major problems that have really been cross-cutting in agriculture this year the two would be the one that we are talking about logistics and animal diseases but also a lot of money was spent dealing with the power issues because you will recall from the start of the year being hard hit by heavy load but by really intense load shedding it meant that people have to spend a lot of money finding alternative energy sources but there were also some losses that were made to an extent in some of the operations in the farm. And this is not only on a farm then on energy sources, but across really the food and fiber and beverages value chain, there's a lot of money that was spent on this. Now you ask the question, how are the farmers feeling? One of the indicators that we, we actually use is what we call the Agbiz IDC Agribusiness Confidence Index to measure the sentiment in the sector. The data that we put out um, earlier this week showed that the sentiment is quite downbeat. Um, it dropped 
from 50 to 40 points. There's an index that is measured from 0 to 100, anything below 50, showing that the sentiment is downbeat. It is now at 40, and this is the lowest level that we last saw in the second quarter of 2020, which is when we were in COVID-19. And certainly the mood is is quite uh, down. When you ask farmers then to say, what are those things that keep them up at night? In addition to the points we've mentioned, the issue of municipalities that are failing and not delivering is one of the frustrations. Rising crime is one of the frustrations, but also within the export markets, the rise in protectionism in addition to the geopolitical tensions that are there affecting agricultural markets are some of those constraints. And the cost inputs have been very, very significant as well. I mean, thank goodness fuel prices are coming down. Diesel is such an enormous cost. But things like fertilizer, things like nitrogen, the stuff that has been dependent on fossil fuels and also, however, dependent on manufacturing components coming out of Russia and places like that and the wars in Ukraine, all of that sort of destabilizing influences added to the cost of producing a kilogram of food, whether that is maize, whether it be potatoes or beef or chicken, Everything is much more expensive to produce, and those costs don't come down ever, do they? No, I mean, that, that is always a challenge, Bruce, because even today, we can make a point to say on a year-on-year basis, fertilizer is down probably by 50%. But I mean, take then the fertilizer of today and you compare with pre-COVID levels, we are nowhere closer to that. And that's the same story with agrochemicals. And how important these inputs, Bruce, take maize farmer in the free state, about 35% of their input cost is just the fertilizer. And any changes then in those price, they, they get to matter a lot. And you, you made the point earlier on to say also the farmers are price takers because regardless of how much um, your input cost um, uh, is, all you can really control is the area that you get to plant. But the price that you get uh, for your commodity, it gets to be, to be a challenge. But very quickly then, Bruce, when you think about the consumer, there was also a thinking sometime earlier in the year, you know, Competition Commission and the others saying, look, uh, the prices are not coming down faster enough uh, and, and they need to look into the food value chain. And I think one of the things that we didn't have uh, a good appreciation of was really these higher costs of the commodity, uh, of agricultural commodities, as well as the time lag from there into the retail level and the associated costs in the value chain of processing, packaging, distribution, which has all been one of those challenges. Hence, if you were to look at the decline to an extent in raw commodity, uh, agricultural commodities, as well as on the food inflation side, has not really been in tandem. Part and parcel, it is both time lags that were there. But certainly, it has been a challenging year. The the cost of my basket of food is going up an average of 8% a year. Do you see any respite in the sort of pricing pressure in the food inflation basket? I think, Bruce, for 2024, things should get uh, somewhat uh, better. Because if you look at the numbers that were released um, some, uh, this week, uh, some of the products that had pushed up those costs were, of course, um, uh, the, the, the egg-related um, uh, products were there. Fruits, vegetables were some of those costs that have actually pushed uh, things up. But if you think about them next year, as the poultry sector somewhat recovers, I think that we will start to see some bit of a moderation onto that. The one thing that we are all worried and looking at is, of course, the El Nino. 
in our view, it will likely be mild and we could have a decent agricultural season. And if that does materialize, then we can expect that food price inflation in general will moderate uh, throughout 2024 from the levels that we are seeing. For the month of November this year, it, it actually increased to 9% from about 8.8 in the previous month. So I think from January, we should see that moderation. But in an event then that El Nino turns out not as we expected, um, then we can begin to speak a different language onto that. So it is the one upside risk that I'm looking at. But everything else that is related to vegetables, to fruit, I think it was a near-term supply constraint. People talk less about the difficulties that potato farmers and the others experienced during load shedding because the impact was not as immediate, but it was after months that they began to harvest where it turns out that the volumes that they were getting were pretty much low, which is why the vegetable products within the food basket, when some people were shopping, they realized that they were more expensive than usual. But I think going into next year, that should moderate, assuming what we think about El Nino does materialize and it does really remain mild. Wandile Sehlobo, thank you very much indeed. Top agricultural economist Wandile Sehlobo at the Agricultural Business Chamber on The Money Show this evening. I grew up in a farming community. I couldn't cope with the variables. I really couldn't. There were just so many things that could go wrong and that did go wrong on a regular basis. And this goes beyond just having to cope with the unpredictability of the weather patterns. This is the stuff that is of global significance that is really weighing on the decisions that farmers have to make each and every single year when they faithfully plough the lands prepare them for planting, put seeds in the ground, and then anticipate that nature's going to do its job. Not only is nature now sort of challenging it with the uh, La Nina effect, but also all of the impact, of course, of these external factors, which is also weighing in on the performance of the sector. Ultimately, it has an effect on you and me because the price we pay at the tills is directly impacted by the costs of producing the stuff on the farm. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. So we've had normal. We've had the new normal. Now, according to Isaac Urendal, investment strategist at Old Mutual Wealth, we've got a new, new normal. And he's looking at why the next decade could actually be fundamentally different from a preceding decade and actually, the investment landscape could change completely. Everyone's focused on today's excitement around the U.S. Fed and the substantiation from the Bank of England and from the European Central Bank that maybe, perhaps, just maybe, um, the inflation cycle has peaked and there are no more interest rates and next year will be uh, full of cuts. Uh, calling peak interest rates is a very exciting fact. Then there's the view that we'll get three interest rate cuts next year. How much does it really matter? Really, I mean, whether interest rates come down twice or three times or four times next year, sure, in the short term it matters. But should we not be more concerned about what we're thinking about, what's five years from today, December 2028, or 10 years from today, December 2033? Surely those are more important factors for us to be considering, Isaac Wendell, investment strategist at Old Mutual. So often we get caught up in the short-term noise. I was reflecting on a 1980 newspaper article this week which spoke about Apple and just the appetite for Apple's listing um, in in, uh, December 1980. And there was some circumspection as to whether this little computer company was ever going to do anything special. And here we sit, you know, 40 years later, and this is the biggest company in the world so often the short term is noise and distraction 
Absolutely. Um, the problem is just that the long term is inherently unpredictable. So, I mean, realistically, no one in 1980 could have known that Apple would become the giant it is today. So, so there is a, there's sort of an inherent folly in trying to predict what the world is going to look like five, ten years from now. Um, but we still need to kind of try and think about it because um, I think at the very least, thinking long term means you kind of can look out for signposts, road markings, and so on to tell you sort of in which direction you are you are going. So, okay, what is the new new normal then? You're saying that we need to prepare ourselves for this new new normal. What is it as best as you can see it now? Yeah, so so just to take one step back, I mean, the new normal was the, the period following the financial crisis. It was an era of low interest yep. rates, low inflation, the deleveraging. It was an era where there wasn't sufficient demand. Uh, no one paid attention to supply. I think the new, new normal is this post-COVID era where um, perhaps we're going to have slightly higher inflation, slightly higher interest rates. Um, I think a much greater focus on supply. You know, demand is not the issue at the moment. Demand seems to be pretty strong, especially in the U.S., but it's the supply side of things that's causing the hassles, uh, including, you know, things like microchips and, and uh, all these high-tech elements, including things like green metals that we'll need for the energy transition. Um, even in the short term, we've had issues with supply on, on, on the fossil fuels. Um, and then I think a third element of this new new normal, of course, is just the, the more fractured geopolitical environment. You know, so, so the preceding couple of decades actually have been an era of globalization, uh, integrating economies, and uh, you know, a couple of developing economies benefited greatly from that including China, but now, of course, China is sort of the leader of one of these uh, these new poles in the multipolar world. Um, and I think that is a very different environment to the one that, uh, that preceded it. Uh, I agree. And there is this attempt, I think, uh, whether it's misguided or not, by the BRICS nations, uh, that includes Brazil, Russia, India, China, and ourselves, as well as a, a potential new gathering of, of countries that want to be part of this weirdly named alliance or grouping of countries to say we're tired of American multilateralism we want a new kind of world order and I wonder with how much sway you put in that as a game changer of the next five to ten years yeah I'm, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical um, the, the kind of the BRICS countries have you know as much as they have a few things in common they have also big differences between them and I mean just just to use obvious example India and China I think are you know, they, they fought skirmishes over border disputes between them, you know. So, so it's not as if this is a cohesive block by any means. But, but definitely it is a world where American hegemony is fading. Um, as I said, it's becoming more of a multipolar world. And I think especially for developing countries, the path to prosperity for those countries that made it out of poverty, you think of Taiwan, Korea, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, a couple of others, you know, that path was very much by integrating themselves into a global economy. They very much rode the wave of globalization. Again, China is also an example. Um, if that is not an option, you know, then how do countries in Africa um, and elsewhere climb the ladder of prosperity? So, so that is, I think, a, a long-term worry, even in the, especially in the global south. You know, I don't think being part of BRICS is... is by any means, the, the, the route to salvation here. I mean, we need a strong and integrated global economy.
So what are going to be the big drivers as far as you can tell right now? Uh, is that for, I don't know, let's pick a five-year time frame. What are, the, what, are, what are the key sort of signals you're watching for each and every single day? Yeah. Um, as I said, I think, I think the inflation interest rate picture will remain very important. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, it's not so much whether the Fed cuts three times or four times. It's really around do we, do we have a sustained period of, you know, it's rather, does inflation move down to 2%, roughly speaking, on a sustained basis? Or do we have ongoing shocks to the inflation system? Do we have a more volatile inflation environment? And I think that's quite possible if you think about the, the issues with um, supply shortages that I spoke about, but also the fact that, that governments are a lot more interventionist now, a lot more likely to use um, industrial policy, fiscal policy to, to get what they want. I mean, just to use an example, the, the, you know, the American government's big injection, they, they call it the Inflation Reduction Act, but it really is a big piece of industrial policy to build factories and so on in America. So, so I think the inflation outlook is important. The interest rate outlook is important. I think on the geopolitical side, what matters most is whether China and the U.S. can maintain some sort of level of not friendliness, because I think we, we're beyond the point where they can be friends, but just kind of keep hot conflict off the table and sort of maintain the status quo in Taiwan. I think that's a very important uh, thing to to, uh, to consider in the in the short term, and then I think thirdly, you know, I think uh, we didn't touch on it earlier, but really the, the the rapid gains in technology in artificial intelligence. There's a lot of excitement around it, but we need to see how that actually impacts day-to-day activities of businesses. You know, that's when you can really start to see the economic impact. Is when you know random company X integrates AI into its very boring daily processes. It's, it's not the exciting <laughs> things that actually move the dial. It's really the day-to-day things. Um, you know, I, I, I always joke that the day that I can use AI in my inbox to help me manage my emails, you know, that's the day that I'll become excited about artificial intelligence. Got you. So I think those are sort of three things too. Fabulous. Thank you very much. Isaac Wendell, uh, investment strategist at Old Mutual Wealth. To have been a fly on the wall, wouldn't that have been wonderful in those discussions between Fikile Mbalula and Mavuso Msemang and what led to the rescinding of the resignation and the apology from the ANC for nasty things said. And we're in the silly season. We really are. This isn't the Christmas silly season. It's the election silly season. Can we just get them done and dusted, please, as soon as possible? Uh, and then we can all move on with whatever comes next. APSA CIB, provider of market-leading digital trade finance Solutions is proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. Uh, in the next half hour, um, part of the Genius Podcast series. I thought it would be quite fun to share some of the extracts from you to encourage you to download and listen over the holidays because there's some wonderful and fascinating insights uh, from some of the South Africa's greatest entrepreneurs. Um, so we'll do that this evening. Adrian Gore is up next. Songoba uh, Vuba, uh, who is going to be talking to us about what you need to be doing in this quieter time for your small business if you are somebody with a small business that has a quiet time ever and then Gugu Sidaki at Wealth Creed on the homework you never want to do but you really 
need to do. That's all still coming in the next hour of this Public Holiday Eve uh, money show. And on the Genius Podcast, we have had the pleasure of meeting up with so many wonderful South African entrepreneurs and really digging a little bit deeper into what it is that they've built and created and the huge impact that they have on society generally. I met up with Adrian Gore, the founder and group chief executive of Discovery Holdings at Gibbs, the Gordon Institute of Business Science, as part of my book launch of the book Genius. We had a live audience. They were wonderful. Adrian Gore was on form. And I'd been told many years before that Adrian Gore had on his study wall at home a framed piece of foolscap with a list of eight or maybe nine points that he'd scribbled in his doctor-like handwriting on this piece of paper, points that he needed to achieve in the early days of discovery, before discovery was even discovery. It was called other things. He had this framed to-do list with the eight key points. Now, almost unintelligible, but if you look at it carefully, you can make out what it says. It's a list of things to do when you start your business. Well, at least that's what was happening in Adrian Gore's brain at the time. I started off little bit provocatively, since Adrian Gore on the day took uh, his refined idea to Laurie Dippenard at what was then RMB. And I said to him, did you have anything more than just, you know, a bright idea and a hope that maybe this bright idea would find traction in the mind of Laurie Dippenard? I think it is fairly accurate. I mean, it, it wasn't nothing. Let me, let me try. Just check it. Let me try and kind of just push back a bit. I mean, firstly, I actually didn't know Murray at the time, my reputation. R&B was still quite a small bank. And I came from this, in those days, giant Liberty Life, which was kind of really, and it still is a great company. I mean, I had a very deep conviction about healthcare and how it would play out. I didn't have an actual business plan or a specific product, but I had a very deep conviction about building a sophisticated health insurer based on values, based on people, and a very, I think, deep sense of trends that were taking place. And so that, that was the idea. And I think I was lucky to have met someone like Lowry because I think he had a similar mindset about values, about purpose, about you know, the bigger macro issues rather than you know, the rands and cents and how does the business plan work. But that's how it started. But there was a very deep conviction of kind of healthcare is a, is a microcosm of how countries work wherever you go. They're fundamental. And what was taking place in the country, the changes taking place in healthcare were at the same time. So the opportunities seem to be vast. And I've come out of, a, out of Liberty. I was a young guy, I was 27, I think, at the time. And, and we built this fantastic health insurance product. And its, it's traction had been remarkable. And what did you do when you got to that desk? Because you were by yourself, I think, for the first six months. You had to come up with a plan. Well, I started like I think any founder starts. You start with a blank sheet of paper. And you don't. I mean, that's the to-do list. I'm a, I'm a list keeper. So this is the to-do list, by the way. It is dated the 11th of the 3rd, 1991. So is this day one, literally, of sitting? Day two. So day, day one was 10th, and in fact, we celebrated our 30 years on the 10th of March. Um, but that was the to-do list, and the day out ended, so the next day, one eleven, you know, at the end of the first day. And that's how it is. And you can see that, I mean, you start out with, think of administration process. Think of, in our case, think of an actuary. I want to go through some of the points, okay? Point number one. A point actuary. Consider Pete Williams. Rob Williams. Rob, Rob Williams, your writing's awful. I oh, know. You should have been a doctor. <laughs> or Peter Lombrecht. Yeah. Did either of those ever work? We did both. In fact, Rob Williams is still part of one of our boards. And then it looks like C. Reed Harper. Rod Harper. Rod Harper. He ran an administration company that I thought we could kind of outsource, which we did, in fact. Actually, quite, but actually did quite well. I haven't gone through the list for a long time. 
Most we can tick off. Okay, good. So that's two. The C. Alistair Hubbard, advert for administrator. Date to all tasks. Name, logo. And you wrote some names down of people who might get you a name and a logo. You didn't even have a name at no, this stage. No. How long did that take? It took a while. There were a few iterations. and It was quite bizarre when I think of that list. What were your options? Do you remember options? You know what? Once we used RMB as the, the shareholder, they had, if you look at their logo, keys. Yes. You know, so we actually stole the idea of Blue Key Life or Health. It started. Then they acquired Momentum Life. Yes. So then we used the Momentum brand initially, right, which was controversial, but actually it worked quite well. And then on a flight down to Cape Town, myself and Barry Schwarzberg, who was a co-founder, and then on a flight we were talking about what do we name the product? You know, and I had this like grandiose corporate health plans and Barry said, what about discovery? You know, it's a discovery. And I said, shit, that's, that's it. We've got it, you know. Like most things in life, when you, you've got all the research and, the, you know, there's an epiphany. And that's how the brand started. And uh, that's how we got it. So it wasn't, it was actually one of the longer journeys in the process. Point number six is product development. Good. It's up there. Um, number seven, a business plan. <laughs> Did you ever actually write a business plan? Yeah. I mean, it's an intriguing, I hope it's not bad advice for aspiring entrepreneurs. <laughs> but I, I think to, to Larry Dippenau's credit and the shareholder's credit, actually, the first thing you learn about starting a business, have a business plan, what's the capital plan, you know, what are the cash flows. We never had any of that. If it was built on truly on values, purpose, and, and a conviction, there was no business plan. So I raised the capital without any plan at all. And you can see there, I mean, two things you should have is a product and a business plan. Both says the product developments commence with ideas. I read again last night. We didn't have an idea for a product yet and no business plan. When I said you had no ideas, that's what I meant. There was, you had nothing. I mean, there were some ideas, obviously, but, but there was no firm, you know, kind of how the product exactly worked. But just bear in mind, there was a, a gap in coverage in what people are experiencing. So how do you cover that gap and how, you know, I mean, that was... But there was no business plan. In fact, we kind of the capital that we allocated was based on what we felt the regulator would need. We built the organisation to this day, not on it's extremely complex and actuarial, but it's it's still based on kind of a, a vision, a purpose, a set of values. You know that that is what the promise is, not kind of rands and cents. And so you've got to get both right. But the, the business plan is a, is a constraint. It's a necessary thing, but it's not the it's not the liberator. And then point number eight, I can't read. It looks like buy Magnums to take home. Magnum Life or something? Yeah, yeah. Well, what happened is RMB acquired, did a deal with this, I forget his name, but Magnum Life was a life insurer. And I think this guy was a crook. And somehow when the, when the whole thing folded, they took ownership of Magnum Life as, as, as surety. So it was, a, it was a dormant life insurance company sitting in the belly of RMB. And that's how I got there. A mate of mine was a trader at RMB. And he said to me, if you want to start, they've got this dormant life company. Go see Lowry. I said, well, who? He said, he's, he's the CEO. Go see him. I'm sure they'll fund this thing. So that's how I got there. So we started out with a shell. It had a thousand, I think, retirement annuity policy holders. It was Barry's first task to try and solve that problem. What do we do these? And we shifted to another company. But that was the, the problem, how we take this life shell, life company shell, this license, and kind of bring it out. So what is the genius then of Adrian Gore? I don't, know, I don't acknowledge the, the label, but... I, I think the attributes I have that have made me successful, as successful, is I think there is a determination and a dogged nature of there's a way through. I think I'm good in ambiguity. I think you have to be able to manage ambiguity. Things are never clear. And I think my, I think my skill is I connect dots between things. 
You know, you can hire brilliant clinicians, actuaries, technology people with IQs of 5,000, but the ability to see complexity and kind of connect the dots between them as to what might happen and where the opportunities are, that I think is the thing I do in our organization. Whether I do it well or not, I think that's it's a fundamental skill, I think, in a very complex, certainly global environment, we're dealing with healthcare and geopolitical issues and actuarial issues. And uh, fundamentally, I, I'm a... I create hope and vision. I mean, that's what I think my role is. So I'm not sure it's a genius, but I'm best at that. As a trained actuary, I can get into the detail, but I'm top-down. I'm not a bottom-up leader. I'm a top-down. You know, I start with a purpose. I start with a vision. And if they drag me into the spreadsheets, I'll do it. You know what I mean? But I won't start in the spreadsheets. I don't believe you build great stuff by starting bottom-up. You've got to be top-down. That's my approach. I'm not sure that's encapsulates. I'm not sure that's genius. I think that's just my proclivity you know that you thrive in complexity most people try to simplify things down to its barest essence it strikes me that you love the complexity you love the fact that you actually create as you have developed the discovery business in all of its various iterations you've thrived in the complexity of knowing you're building huge barriers to entry for anybody else yes i think it's true but i, I actually thrive i was brought up in a contrarian family i thrive in pursuit of like the, the inconsistencies piss me off. You know what I'm saying to you? They irritate me. I thrive in trying to find... My team knows this. I'm, you know, we look for data like the South Africa story. It annoys me, the narrative versus the reality. You know, if you look at the data, it doesn't tally with the reality. You know what I'm saying to you? If you look at the, the, the middle class, how it's grown over time. But when you make business decisions based on the facts, when you're building your plans, let the others moan about this stuff and plan appropriately because that's so i we say complexity i'm in pursuit of always trying to find what the data shows what's really going on and wherever we dig we find differences between what people think is dogma it's fact versus reality there's always a difference and there's so little work done on this stuff there's opportunity so i grew up in a home that focused on education and truth and my parents are nothing more important than you go get an education and you know that's my mother hates business, thinks, oh, yeah, you must be a crook if you've built it. There's something wrong. <laughs> something you've done wrong. You know what I mean? But the point is there's a, a dogged belief in, in intellectual truth, you know? And I think that kind of upbringing has created a session with understanding complexity systems, how they come together. What a fascinating insight from Adrian Gore. I really enjoyed re-listening to that. Um, and Adrian Gore, the founder of Discovery and still chief executive of Discovery, of course. Adrian Gore, one of South Africa's most prolific creators of business and also, of course, one of the eternal optimists of the country, despite the huge obstacles that are often cast in his way. The latest, of course, of which is NHI and the flawed thinking in the application of a health system that is possibly going to leave its supposed beneficiaries worse off than when they went into it. And that's a deep concern. Of course it is. But Adrian Gore, the eternal optimist, if you want the rest of that podcast, it's available in your favorite podcast app. You simply go to Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast Series. You'll find that and other podcasts from the series that we published earlier this year. Um, and lots of you listened. And so if you listen and you'd like to listen again, please, by all means, do. If you missed out the first time around, don't 
be a twit this Christmas. Um, make sure that you download. Make sure that you subscribe. Make sure that you get it into your podcast feed so that you've got something to do on your road trips. Also, of course, it'll make you a lot more interesting at family gatherings this year. That's what it'll do. It'll make you fascinating. You can say, you know what, Adrian Gore? He had a list of eight things. And these were the eight things. And you could rattle them off and people will be captivated by your wisdom. 702. Bruce is on the Money Show. Welcome to our Money Show this evening. And uh, I see a small business feature brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank, uh, built for your business. Uh, so Nova Vuba is uh, the entrepreneur. He is with us on the uh, with us on the entrepreneur feature on our small business feature tonight. And uh, Songova, I wonder... If we look at it at this time of the year and we're exhausted, we all just want to shut the doors. I'm looking at friends of mine who are all going, I'm on leave. I'm on leave. I've shut the, I've shut my business. I'm out of here. And I think everybody just wants to run away. But I don't know if you can afford to run away. Can you? Yeah, um, Bruce, thank you so much for having me again. Um, Always amazing talking to you. Really glad I'm not a twat and I am subscribed to that podcast, that genius podcast. It was great listening in. Excellent. Um, I I said twit, by the way. I said twit. I said twit. I didn't use that other term. Twat, incidentally, if you wonder what it means, it's people who work, it's people who work, who skip the office on Monday and Friday and work only on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. Um, Yeah, that's what it means. Um, before we get too excited. Um, now, thank no. you for subscribing to the Genius Podcast. There'll be many, many more, I hope. Now, let's talk about what we should be doing before we close the office door and switch off the lights. Yeah, so I think if, if you're an entrepreneur running your business, it's an interesting time of the year. We're kind of one of those countries who literally come to a complete standstill for pretty much a month. I mean, it's really difficult to get anything if not uh, much done between 15th of December and 15th of January and I think even today I've also had one of those breakneck days where you're chasing up on certain things trying to get things across the line trying to lock it in for this year and I find entrepreneurs and founders look at this time very differently while kind of some of our you know counters in a corporate may say hey let's just leave it over for the new year and kick it forward. A lot of entrepreneurs are really trying to push and hustle hard to have those meetings on the 14th of December, on the 15th of December, and trying to make sure that stuff gets across the line. And I think it's an interesting time, um, especially if you're a founder whose business is outside of the retail sector that doesn't close during this period. And especially for a founder whose, cor- whose clients are corporates, where it's effectively a quiet period and almost dead time in this period. So I do think that, um, you know, we can push as much as we can, but at some point it's kind of futile fighting against it. And I think I'm quite pragmatic in kind of advising that really the things to ensure you can do is that if there is anything you can still do this year, definitely lock it in. I'd say number one priority is as a small business, making sure you've gotten paid for everything that's been done this year. Um, and I think I see it time and time again where kind of those invoices are coming through at the last minutes, chasing up finance teams who have probably switched off um, well before the beginning of December, to be honest. So it really is around making sure to close out what you can and most especially for entrepreneurs and businesses where you need to manage your cash flow quite 
closely, a month offline and a month of very little activity is pretty tough to manage and therefore locking in as much cash flow as possible before switching off for the holidays or before others switch off for the holiday if you're not switching off becomes pretty imperative for just a little bit of mental breathing room for you as a founder and entrepreneur. You want to be able to sleep at night, don't you? You don't want to be worrying about whether or not you'll have any cash in the middle of January. Indeed. You want to be not thinking about the that stuff. As crucial as it is, it shouldn't be worrying you. It should be there, it should be comfortable, and you should be confident in your ability to get started again and hit the ground running when you do reopen. Absolutely. And like you say, you want to be able to sleep at night, but I also think that this period of time is a great time to get ahead and kind of plan for the new year and your headspace not is not going to be appropriate for planning for the, all the things that you want to get busy with in the new year if you are worrying about payments and you are worrying about cash flow. Um, so I do think that at this time you want to kind of make sure that all those niggly things that will keep you up at night have been sorted as much as they can and you have peace that you couldn't do anymore if it hasn't worked out exactly the way you want. And then I foresee that 2024 is going to be another bumper year for us. I mean, 2023 has been a really tough year, a really long year. Um, and I can't necessarily see any reason why we may necessarily think that 2024 is going to be fundamentally different. And that means that as founders and entrepreneurs, we've got to be top of our game in what it is our plan and intention for 2024 is. And that type of thinking, that type of strategic planning, that time of getting inspired, creative, getting the ball running is not going to come from a place where the founder's headspace is worrying about cash flow or worrying about things that they yeah. actually cannot control and influence. How important, if at all, is a total shutdown in the mind of a founder in as much as that is possible? Because founders tend to be obsessive. Mm. They tend to be the people who are engaged <laughs> 24-7 with the business. They become quite boring sometimes, actually, about it. Um, and you you just simply want to say to them, just take a chill pill. Just, I mean, even if it's just, just a week or maybe two. And if you're lucky, you can take three <laughs> because that sets you up for the new year, surely. Goodness, did you say three weeks, Bruce? Oh, my gosh. I'm I pretty know, sure a couple I, I, people I, I'm, I'm listening deluded. are going to have a heart attack deluded. hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> so I do, I do think that no matter, despite how hard it is to switch off when your brain's firing on managing all aspects of the business and the really cutthroat nature of the economy and environment most of our businesses operate in, I do think it's important to switch off. I do think it's important to take some downtime for as long as you can afford. For some people, like you say, it may be a couple of days. And for some, they could be able to take it off for a couple of weeks. I think that as entrepreneurs and founders, your business is a pretty direct correlation to your own personal well-being and health. Um, you know, we don't have the luxuries of being large corporations where, you know, if you're sleeping on the job, someone else will pick it up. If you're an entrepreneur and founder and your business is still getting through that sometimes very deep hockey stick, you've got to make sure that you're operating at your best and that operating at your best is not possible if you kind of never have downtime, never switch off, never recoup 
but also our best strategic ideas and best business ideas and the breakthroughs we make hardly ever come when we're sitting behind our laptop, slugging it out, trying to get through all the admin, the emails, the work, and staring at the bank account balance. So I do think it's important to switch off, switch up your environment, even if you're working from a different environment, the change of scenery does a lot, because you've got to protect your well-being, mental health, and otherwise as an entrepreneur in order to put your company's best foot forward in the new year, because your company's never going to do any better than the state of health that you are currently in. Can I make one personal request of everybody this season? Because I had some brilliant ideas this time last year and I just thought, how clever am I? How brilliant am I? And I think some of them, (laughs) if if I remember correctly, were probably quite, well, they were probably quite good. But I didn't make a note. Mm. I didn't send myself a voice note. I didn't record on my phone. I made no notes whatsoever because the ideas were so good. Some of them occurred at two o'clock in the morning. Some of them occurred on walks and bike rides. Mm. But I didn't write them down. And I, it, it, it frustrated me no end because I went into a, a really deep relaxation this time last year. And it was fantastic time. <laughs> it really was. And I came back and I went. Where's that idea? <sighs> and it frustrates me to this day that I'm sure there was something there that I should have done that I have not done that hopefully reemerges this December. But write it down. Make a voice note. Record it somehow because if you do go into a, play, a state of, of deep break, you are not necessarily going to be able to remember the detail of your brilliant thought shower, breakthrough, whatever you want to call it, um, in a way that you may anticipate you are because, hey, your brain isn't necessarily wired that way. 100%, Bruce, 100%. And I think sometimes it's even as simple as just having those crazy post-its or a little secret notebook. I remember always carrying around a little moleskin. I don't know if those are still hip and happening, but I remember carrying around a little moleskin with a tiny little pin and would just scribble down the idea. And even if it was kind of as abstract as a little mind map or little bullet points, it would give me something to go back to. And I mean, the best plans and the plans that are most likely to actually be affected are the ones that are written down in some way. Um, so whether it is your phone, but if you can get off of digital, that would help a lot, or a little moleskin notebook or otherwise little post-it, I do think putting it down is important and then kind of come back in the beginning of the year and you've got your little scribbled out notes and kind of flesh those out into an actual plan for the year for you to kick off with. Vuba, thank you so much indeed for joining us this evening. The entrepreneurs on Nova Vuba, very good advice. Do take some downtime. Please don't be, try and be a superhero. Um, you are just going to hurt yourself. And yeah, do as much as you can, as much as you can. After Eyewitness News. The Money Show. Personal Finance. And uh, personal finance brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank, built for your business. Gugu Sidaki is director and wealth manager at Wealth Creed. You're giving us homework, Gugu. I mean, already we've got homework to do with our small businesses. We've got homework to do so that we don't fall behind on the administration around our small businesses. And now, Gugu, you're telling us we need to do personal finance checkups as well. I mean, I don't know. We're going to have long overdue catch-ups with family and friends in the next couple of weeks. We've probably done our medical checks in the last little while. We even got our cars and the brakes checked to make sure that nothing obvious was wrong ahead of road trips. And now before we can go, you say do a financial health check as well. That feels like a step too far. 
And I think that's something that, uh, you know, we may get a bit of pushback on this evening, Gugu. Explain why it's important. Hello, Bruce. Um, I think it really is important. Um, your finances, I mean, money affects everything that you do, everything in your life. It affects the family members that you're talking about. It affects the house that you live in. It affects your health. It affects everything. So it's important to take stock of, of your finances, to do a recap, to make sure that everything is still the way it's supposed to be so that you don't find yourself in a jam, um, you know, when, when life happens. So, yes, it is, it is a bit of work, unfortunately, but I think it's, it's, it's important work. And I think it's the right kind of work and, and, and requires a, a bit of energy and effort for you to find yourself in a good, in a good place. Can't we just do it when the kids go back to school? Can't we just do it when <laughs> budget day comes? Can't we just do it later? Why must we do it now? Mm-hmm. Why so? The thing about life is... <laughs> The thing about life is it happens when it happens, right? Um, Unfortunately, it won't wait for for the start of the year, um, you know, when that geezer bursts and then you all of a sudden discover that you're not covered for it. Uh, Unfortunately, things things like that do happen. Um, And and so many people have been caught off guard, um, unfortunately. So it's one of those things that we really do have to prioritize and take seriously. Is there, I mean, is there a quick fix here? Can we do just the, the very basics? Is it a bit like an oil yeah. change rather than an engine overhaul? Absolutely. I mean, you don't have to do everything right now because, as you quite rightly said, we're all gearing up to take some time off and, and spend some time with our family members. But, yeah, there's just a couple of things um, that we can all do that, that shouldn't take too much time. Um, it just it probably require an hour or so of your day um, before you go off to the holidays, and, and I think that should be sufficient, you know, to keep you in 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 check, um, to keep your finances in check, to make sure that you you don't um, you don't find yourself in a bit of of, of issues um, during the holidays. Um, and okay. and so what, a great what, starting. <laughs> what can we achieve then in this hour? What must we seek to do? Because I mean, if you put a time limit on it and you make it fairly easy, yeah. and you make it fairly achievable yeah. um, to settle down and just to focus in on, I don't know, five or six things that mm. we can just, I don't know, tidy up our affairs, just make sure that there's mm. money in the bank account, make sure that, uh, you know, we, we've paid the bills before we go away so that the water doesn't get cut off or the lights get cut off, mm. you know, more than they do ordinarily. What do we need to do? Yeah, let's start with, with one that we, I mean, you and I have spoken about it a couple of times and that it, it's become a swear word, but something that I think everybody should be doing a little bit more regularly now. And, and that's just, keeping a check on, on your spending. So looking at your, your spending plan, how you've been spending your money in, in the last year and if that's worked for you. So just take stock of what's worked for you and what hasn't. And the things that haven't worked for you, I mean, that that's where you need to go. You don't necessarily have to overhaul the entire budget um, or spending plan. Just look at the things that haven't worked, what's tripped you up in, in the last couple of months and, and is there anything that you can do about it now um, during the holidays to make sure that you, you don't find yourself in a, in a bad place. So have a realistic spending plan for the holidays. We're all going to be overspending. Um, I think that's the reality for, for most people. But that shouldn't devastate your finances come January 2024 when we have to buy uniform and stationery and things like that. And there's just a couple of things that you can do. You could start buying the stationery now, for example, maybe buy half of the stationery 
um, you know, to make sure that at least some of that, um, some of those things are covered. Um, if things are working well, pat yourself on the back because I think so often we beat ourselves up um, so much about the things that we don't do well, and then we forget, you know, to to celebrate the things that we do do well. So all the things that you've done well, just just take a moment and pause. And, and congratulate yourself for doing that because let's face it, it's been such a hard, hard year. So many people, all of us have been struggling. You know, there's, there's so much that's been happening. So it's, it's important for us to just, you know, just take a few minutes to say, yay, done that well. And, and then to sort of focus on what hasn't been, been going well. Yeah, it is important. And again, just reviewing how much money there is and how much money there is to spend and setting a realistic ceiling on your expenditure and apportioning your money as well, saying, look, it's likely to, you know, we'll pay, we'll spend more than we normally do on food. So add a bit of extra money onto that budget. We'll spend a bit more on fun stuff and doing things. So add a bit more money there and just be aware of how much there is so that you don't get yourself in trouble. Uh, the assessment of an emergency fund. Now, this is, I mean, Warren loves to do emergency funds. It's, he's, I think it's his only hobby. Um, and I, again, the emergency fund is that, that little bit of money that you put away each and every single month to make sure that if life happens in a, in a bad way on this holiday where, I don't know, you break an ankle and you can't travel as much as you used to, so your income suffers or whatever, you've got something you can rely upon. You've got some money in the background that you don't need to worry about dipping into the, into the mortgage or into the kids' education fund to, to get yourself out of a hole. Yeah, that's exactly it. So an emergency fund is just meant to get you out of a jam, out of a hole um, when life happens and in- insurance is insufficient or you, you don't have sufficient income or, uh, you know, w- whatever the case is. Um, as we as we mentioned earlier, we, we're going to be spending a little bit more than, than, than we normally do on things like food, for example, possibly travel and things like that. And the emergency fund could potentially be used for that. So instead of you dipping into credit cards, for example, where you're going to be paying interest rates, you could take a bit of money from the emergency fund but there's a caveat to that. Obviously, you need to replenish that money at some point. So if you are disciplined and if you are going to be able to replenish that money in a short space of time, a relatively short space of time, then it's, it's a good idea to, to possibly look into using some of those funds. And just for, for people to remember, um, it's recommended that you keep between three and six months' worth of your annual expenses in an emergency fund. If you can accumulate more, um, it is recommended that you do so. But, y'all, we're looking at about between three and six months' worth of your annual expenses should be in this. We're talking to we're talking to Gugu Sidaki this evening, director and wealth manager at Wealth Creed. Uh, it, the one thing that you do need to face up to, and I've been I've been having a conversation with a colleague in the office in Cape Town from time to time. Pop in, visit her, see her, and every time I shout at the top of my voice in an effort to try and embarrass her, "How's your will going?" She's young; she has no dependents. Young, um, this mum. But she doesn't have a will. And she says, well, I don't have very much. I don't need to worry about that sort of stuff. And I get very agitated at that particular point. So tonight, in honor of that person who shall remain nameless, we're going to talk about the will thing because we must. Gugu Sidaki, more with her in a moment. The Money Show. Personal Finance. Gugu Sidaki, Director and Wealth Manager at Wealth Creed with us this evening. That dreadful thing that we do need to do, that facing up to mortality. I'm a big believer in just getting it over and done with so that you don't need to think about it for another year. But just keep an eye on the will. What might have crept into our lives that we need to reconsider our wills, Gugu? Mm, A few things. So um, people get married all the time. Um, People get divorced. Um, You know, we, we welcome new children into our lives. 
um, our loved ones pass away, we may have purchased assets, we may have sold assets, and all of those changes warrant a review and an update of your will. And yes, people don't want to face up to the fact that we are mere mortals and we're not, we're not going to be here forever. But, you know, dealing with the death of a loved one is traumatic enough. And so adding um, an added layer of, of complexity and stress and, and, and making your people guess how you would have wanted to wind up your estate is, is a little bit unfair. And it's something that you can change while you are here. And as you said, you only need to do it once and then just make tweaks and changes as life happens. And that's all you need to do. And you only need to think about it just once. You know, get the document done, have it signed, tell people where this document is, and then have it changed every now and again. The one thing that can be incredibly rewarding, and I love this part of stuff, and that is to review insurances, because so often, mm. uh, and I'm yet to be proven wrong on this particular point, but I have a very strong belief that if you're a loyal insurance customer, you end up paying far higher premiums over a long period of time than somebody who shops around. Because unfortunately, mm. I think, you know, there's, there's a very clear strategy amongst insurers to hook clients in um, and so they offer better deals than your existing insurer does. And it upsets me enormously. And I've had many discussions, calm discussions, um, with brokers on this particular point. And they said, well, look, I mean, that's the quote from the insurance company. Well, get another quote. And invariably, another quote comes through and it's lower. Uh, And so you end up chopping and changing. And if you don't do that review, Gugu, I think you run the risk of paying a lot of money unnecessarily on our biggest grudge purchase, which is insurance. That's exactly it. And and unfortunately, people tend to treat insurance as an investment. You know, they think that if they keep an insurance for it, or there are certain cashbacks depending on the plan that you've got, but generally speaking, it's a black hole. And you do best to shop around as often as you can, um, preferably once a year, um, to make sure that you're paying a a premium that makes sense for you. And and like all the other things that we've discussed earlier, um, life insurance and short-term insurance, you know, there may have been things that have changed in your life. you know, the wear and tear of assets, for example, may affect the premium that you that you pay. You may have made home improvements, you know, that, that need to be covered or accounted for in, in your insurance um, schedule. Changes in your lifestyle, for example. Um, if you travel more, you travel less, you know, working from home, you start smoking, stop smoking, or whatever the change is. Um, all of those things need to be updated um, with your insurer. And yes, I, I agree with you 100%. But more, more often than not, you can always come up with a better deal if you shop around. And that becomes quite rewarding because suddenly there's a little bit more money in your bank account in the new Mm. year because you took the trouble to do precisely that. The critical lesson here, Google, is just ensuring that you're getting like for like, of course, because you can, Mm. um, when you when you go through this process, miss some of the detail in the in the wording Mm. of a policy, and suddenly you your car, you know, you have an accident, and you suddenly go, oh, where's my replacement vehicle? And you phone Mm. up the insurance and say, oh no, no, you didn't tick that box. You go, that's Mm. why it was cheaper. Oh yes, Mm. it's because I didn't. Take the, the 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 cover of the car, and then you curse yourself for being uh, penny wise and pound foolish on that particular yeah. case. So just ensure that you're getting like for like value, and then I think you're you're yeah. a for away. Something I've not considered, and a note that uh, you sent me was uh, do a digital security check. Now we wouldn't see this as part of a personal finance cleanup, but it's actually such a mm. good idea. Explain to me what you're thinking. Yeah. It's crucial. I mean, I'll, I'll explain to you in terms of what we're experiencing personally as a business. All of a sudden, we're getting spam email, um, and, and it just turns out that it's just an antivirus that needed to be updated. And, and if you're not 
you know, vigilant. You can miss these things and just happily carry on with 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 your day. Um, it's it's December, it's the holidays, and we know the criminals are everywhere, right? I mean, they're everywhere normally, but um, more so during during the holidays, and they are preying on people, unsuspecting um, individuals who are just. Um, you know, not not as vigilant as, as as they should be. So it's important for you to just make sure, um, you know, a simple check on on, for example, the amount of money that you can tap on your card, um, has huge implications on on your security. I, you know, I know of so many people who misplaced their cards or lost because the cards have been stolen, um, only for those cards to land up in in the wrong hands and for for individuals to just keep tapping and and, and spending their money. So over the holidays, it, it may be a good idea to reduce. Um, your limits, your withdrawal limits, your cash withdrawal limits, your 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 tapping limits, just to make sure that if anything were to happen, um, you'd, you'd be protected to 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 a certain extent. So make sure that I mean it may be even be a good idea to change passwords or PIN numbers, for example. And a lot of people I know, if they bank at, at multiple banks, for example, you have multiple cards, use the same PIN number, and and um, because we're lazy, you know that that's generally what 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 happens, and and criminals know this. So it's just, it's, I think it would be a great idea to just change the routine a bit when it comes to um, your digital security just to make sure that you're protected. And then, again, not something particularly obvious, but that idea of prioritizing our own well-being, taking the time off, taking the time out, switching the phones off, locking them away, putting them so far away, taking the kids' devices away, and just saying, now we're going to stare at each other until we've got something to say. And it doesn't matter what we're going to say, but we're going to bond. And you're not going to like it, but we're going to do it anyway. And it's going to be memorable and you will enjoy it. Um, it's kind of that important sort of family stuff that we we need to put ourselves through at this time of the year is just to reconnect and to feel human again. Yeah, crucial. Um, and, and the thing about, I remember I said money affects all aspects of your life. And um, it's important for us to consider all aspects of our life, not just uh, the money. I mean, there's a Gallup study on, on well-being. Uh, they keep updating it. But they found that about 7% of individuals are thriving in, in all five elements of well-being. So in the five elements are career, so liking what you do every day, um, social, um, your social well-being, so having meaningful relationships, friendships, um, your financial aspect, which is what we're talk- talking about today, your physical well-being, so having the energy um, to to get things done and, and exercising regularly, um, as well as community or, or giving back, so liking where you live and, and, and you know, the, the activities that are available around where you live. And it's crucial for all of us um, to evaluate all five um, aspects of our well-being and not just focus on one, because the thing is, you know, if, if one aspect of, of your well-being or of your life is, is, is not thriving, it tends to affect all the others. So if you only focus on money but not on your emotional or psychological well-being, you're not going to have a terribly fulfilling life or an enjoyable gotcha. life. So it's important for you to consider all five aspects, I'm according to this study anyway, and the five aspects of well-being, and, and to ensure that you, you live a well-rounded and fulfilling life overall. Wisdom on a Thursday night. Gugu Sidaki, you can now begin your long weekend. Thank you very much for giving up part of it for us. Director and Wealth Manager at Wealth Creed on The Money Show, which is brought to you by APSA CIB. APSA CIB is a provider of market-leading digital trade finance solutions, and it's proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA, of course, is a...